Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. You're listening to Naked Reflections. The history of our attitudes to childhood is fascinating and distorted. With me to discuss aspects of childhood are Simon Baron-Cohen, Lindsay Burton and Julian Stanley. Let's hear a clip from Hannah Newton on The Naked Scientists. She's talking about Victorian theories of childhood. One author wrote that children's brains are drowned and drunk with moisture and humours. And this is why children weren't very rational. And it also accounted for their emotional tendencies. Children cry very easily and get very happy and very sad very quickly. And that emotional fluctuation was put down to the fact that the rational soul, the part of the soul responsible for reason, was slightly incapacitated by all this liquid. And for this reason, children's brains were thought to be like wax. They were very impressionable, which made them peculiarly capable of learning and also made them a time in their life really when their personality was thought to be formed. Some premonitions of modern neuroscience there. Sai, I'd like to sort of move back to the earlier stages of mm. childhood and the development, the development of the personality. That's an, an area of your expertise. Mm. What, what's the latest research telling us? I think um, that the latest research is still in line with some of the very classic old research. <laughs> That's so, encouraging. So, so, you know, a lot of the kind of founding ideas came from uh, a psychologist called John Bowlby. Yeah. who worked at the Tavistock Attach- cl- Clinic. Attachment theories. Particularly so. around the, the concept of attachment and the, the importance of having a secure attachment with a caregiver, often a parent, and you know, uh, hopefully for most kids more than one caregiver, you know, two parents or a grandparent, so that the child is getting a sense of being loved and valued and being important right from the beginning. And you know, that, was, that was revolutionary in its day back in the 1950s. The idea that you know that that children take you know they they take stock of these of what they're receiving from from adults. Previously, it might have been acceptable to send your child off to boarding school or send your child off for um, significant amounts of time, but actually, it was it was understood from Bowlby's work that those kinds of separations can have a big emotional impact. And I think you know the new neuroscience is is, is supporting that idea. There's work coming out of the Anna Freud Centre in London, mm, for example. Excellent work. Uh, part of UCL. Just kind of documenting that the first year of life, a lot of the kind of circuitry that's being laid down in, in the brain is the result of the quality of emotional relationships that that child is receiving. And so really what you're saying is from the late 50s to the present day, we, we still have the same views 
of childhood? Well, I think we've got new tools, but some of the ideas have stood the test of time. And would you say that the personality of the child who becomes the adult, that's formed at this very, very early stage? Or is that developed as they go in through the early years through to primary school? It's not that, you know, that the early years are the only uh, time when uh, experiences are important. But if you look at people who develop quite significant psychiatric difficulties in later life, and look back at their childhoods, there is a big link. So something like borderline personality disorder, people who have real problems in regulating their emotions, forming uh, trust with other people, and um, being able to have kind of stable relationships, a very significant majority, something like 80%, suffered from neglect or even abuse in their early childhoods. Julian, is this something that you find uh, in the work that you do when you're working with teachers that when they kind of unpack it, if there's a problem with a, a child in, in the classroom, it goes back to the family or goes back to the, uh, uh, that environment? Yes, many teachers spot signs of difficulty at home, let's put it like that. And um, often where there's very strong relationships between teachers and the parents of a pupil there can be an alliance and that alliance can be very very powerful and helpful and uh, today in schools often um, they assign uh, other teachers to coach or look after or look out for particular children or groups of children who are displaying symptoms of difficulty in terms of their behavior or their interactions with other children Um, and so that's a very powerful tool actually Mm. because often children are very isolated because they don't want to be disloyal to their parents and they you only know what you know you don't know anything different you're brought up at home you Mm. assume that the way you are being parented is the way to be parented and we focused a lot in this part of the conversation about um emotional experiences as determining you know whether you um grow up with a sense of security and self-esteem or or not but there's another, another whole chunk of, of children who struggle, not because they didn't receive plenty of love, but because of so-called neurodevelopmental factors. You know, it's just it's partly genetic um, and how the brain gets wired up. So you're talking autism here. And autism, uh, kids who are kind of late to talk, you know, so most yes. kids are sort of developing language without much effort. You know, that children are saying their first words by 12 months and whole sentences by their yes. second birthday you know but there are a, a, a percentage of children who don't develop language and social skills not because of lack of love or lack of support from their families but for for genetic partly genetic reasons uh, and they need support too you know they need to be picked up so we shouldn't just always be focusing on what have the families not been providing you know there are just differences That's a really important there are point. differences yeah. in the population you know and some, some kids talk early some kids talk late and the kids who are talking late may, may struggle in things like turn-taking or participating in classroom activities and so forth. They may need extra support and even a diagnosis of a disability. Well, autism was once refrigerator mother syndrome, wasn't it? Yeah. Long, you yeah. know, decades ago. Yeah, probably not since about the 1960s. Yeah. So I think most people now recognize that it's a, a biomedical condition. Mm. So there's more awareness but whether there's enough services and support yeah. is still, you know, at play. I'm interested in where the phrase the came from. The idea that um, uh, it, autism was caused by emotionally distant mothers, which has been completely debunked as nonsense yeah, at this yeah. point. Um, but I 
I would point out that the parent is still a really important figure, you know, obviously funding cuts and resources uh, not being available notwithstanding, you know, it is still the parent that is mm. the first responder and the mediator of re- any resources, um, you know, state provided, privately provided for yeah. a child who needs them. I would agree. But, you know, parents themselves can experience stress. Mm. And so they may themselves need support. Mm. Uh, so if we take autism, for example, you know, it's now kind of quite clear that parents of autistic mm. kids experience a lot of stress if their child isn't sleeping and they, their parents have to try to get to work the next day. Yes. Um, you know, high rates of, of marital breakdown in families where there's an autistic child. So although we should be turning to parents to kind of be, to be you said, sort of mediating the support for the child, I think we need to also make sure that there is family support. Yeah, and I think that links in, doesn't it, to the notion of communities and the importance of communities, um, whether you're involved in a local group, whether you're involved in a religious community. Um, not being isolated is particularly mm. important in being able to kind of mm. uh, make some uh, sense of difficult situations. Oh, sorry, Lindsay, I thought you were looking. Um, <laughs> no, just just <coughs> reflecting. Uh, my brother's actually autistic. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I'm just I'm reflecting on the experience yeah. of growing up as a sibling and the the mm. um, uh, experience of of accessing respite, uh, not care, but respite activities for my parents and exactly. for myself. So, you know, so you do have that um, family perspective. Mm including the impact on you as a sibling. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, but coming back to this idea of destigmatizing and of raising awareness, there's an interesting new word that's out there, which is called neurodiversity. Neurodiversity really just means that we're all very different, but our brains are very different. There, there isn't a single way to either be normal um, and but, you know, by the same token... If you're not conforming to some notion of normality, it means that you're abnormal. We're kind of throwing away that very binary, kind of almost um, mythical notion of the normal child. And we're recognizing that there are many ways Mm. for children to develop. So that's neurodiversity. But do we not need some sense of what normality is, even if it's a myth, even if it's a, a breadth to what normal is? Because we certainly taking it beyond the question of childhood, we, we, we live with a myth, the myth of the nation, the myth of a community, the myth of society. So isn't there something that you quite, quite dangerous about saying there's no such thing as normal? Uh, so I think that normal implies we should all be the same. And what, what neurodiversity gives us is just like we've, we think about diversity in other parts of society. You know, we're now thinking about diversity of brains and about difference. So I don't think that's dangerous. I mean, I think you're right that we still need to have some notion of morality. We're not saying that there's no kind of uh, boundaries on what counts as, as moral behavior. So we still need to be thinking about what, 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 you know, what, what would be a good society. So really it's about living with difference, that we're, we're all different, but how we live together Precisely. with difference. Yeah. So whereas the autistic child, even before we had a term like autism, might have been the child who was bullied for being different, you know, today I think, you know, children in the mainstream are recognising differences are just part of any community. Uh, some people may struggle with certain things and the idea of uh, picking on a person just because they're different is no longer acceptable. It's also mm-hmm. worth noting if we, if we pull back and consider, you know, human society as a whole, um, and we think about norming, the adult is normed and the child is ultimately othered. 
Um, it's one of the last power binaries that we don't really talk about. Um, it plays a huge role in children's literature theory. Um, the f- big fancy word for it is adonormativity, the idea that we norm based on age. Um, so in that sense, the autistic child and the neurotypical child are actually not that far apart from each other um, in that they're both sort of put into this othered category by adults who sit around doing podcasts about them. And, and can you give us an example in, in, in literature? You talked about uh, what, what sort of things, what sort of texts or books might you be thinking of? All of them. Um, if they're written for children, um, they are sort of inherently uh, adonormative. If you think about children's literature, it is written by adults, it is published by adults, it's marketed by adults, it's sold and purchased by adults. Children are, it's, are receptive mm, of mm, it. Mm. Um, and, and you have um, overt examples, you know, Little Pretty Pocketbook I mentioned earlier, but tons of educational books. Um, you know, very intentionally done up for educational purposes. But even Harry Potter, um, you know, the more popular mm. books for enjoyment can't help but reinforce adult normativity, adult authority um, in, in subtle ways. So can you see the development of children's literature written by children for children? So this is... Um, actually a very uh, contemporary discussion. It's interesting. Um, with the advent of the internet and this thing called fan fiction, um, you, you actually have a, a greater percentage of, of children, typically you know, preteens or teens, writing for each other. Um, you know, it's, it's not traditional publishing. It's outside of um, you know, any sort of money-making avenue, but it's, uh, it's, it's thriving. It's a thriving community. Um, so in, in a sense, it is growing. We're talking about blame and responsibility this week, and let's face it, there's plenty to go round. My guests are Professor Bertram Marley from Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, a specialist in social cognition, moral psychology and human-robot interaction, and a regular contributor, Dr Kitty Alone, research fellow here at the Wolf Institute with specialism in the cognitive science of religion and morality and moral transference. Well, welcome both. Could it be that our inability to call out bad behaviour generates uh, certain frustration and then into vile abuse that is spewed out in our social media? Kitty? Well, as we were talking about sort of the evolution of small-scale groups, um, the internet is sort of something evolutionarily novel in terms of human sort of existence and yes so it's difficult to know where this vitriol that you see spilling out from the depths of the internet comes from I mean it's been argued that a lot of it is to do with anonymity so we are social creatures our reputation is incredibly important without being accountable when you can hide your personhood when you're anonymous people are much more likely to engage in immoral or unethical behaviors and it kind of acts almost like a license so you're hidden behind your keyboard and you can write vitriol and you can write really terrible toxic things because you don't have to be accountable you've got those reputational concerns removed it's interesting that you said a lack of blame i mean some people would argue that the internet 
it's sort of becoming a blame playground, if you like. So you go on Twitter these days and inevitably somebody will have said something that someone finds offensive. So there's a strange dichotomy, I think. At the one hand, there's this reluctance to publicly blame unless you have warrant, as Bertram can talk more about. But there is also this sort of hyper blame that seems to be something that associates itself with the internet and this online community of people who are sort of morally safeguarding the internet. Yeah, it's interesting to hear what you think, Bertram. I mean, we're only beginning to understand the the full dynamic of especially social media. You know, some newspapers stopped having comment sections because people got into such uh, vile discussions that they constantly had to delete every other comment. But I think one of the ways in which we can think about it is that this isn't any more blame. It isn't blame in the sense that I show my respect by expressing my criticism because I assume that you actually have a shared norm and value system. And by criticizing, I then hope that we both repair whatever relationship we had. There is no relationship between whether it's anonymous or even name-carrying individuals. They are removed from each other. They see no facial reactions of horror, of anger. There are no costs to overexpressing, to overblaming, as as we are beginning to use this term. Whereas in reality, overblaming is actually a norm violation. If I accuse you of something that you didn't do, or I blame you strongly for a small violation, if we are part of a group of friends or of colleagues, that would not be acceptable. Because there are costs. We know in our group, if everybody starts overblaming everybody, that group would break down. On the internet, these groups are newly constituted. Each time a new article receives commentary. And on Twitter, there are followers, but those are not groups. They're not interacting. They are reacting. And so I I think the the lack of costs is one thing. And, And I think Ed is right. Whatever frustration and aggression you might have carried into the situation, you then are free to express it in some way. And people don't realize that really expressing aggression leads to more aggression, not only in the other who responds, but also in ourselves. So this limitless permission to express, I think, is is really quite problematic. Let me take you back to Geoffrey Howe's famous resignation speech over 30 years ago, when he spoke of Margaret Thatcher's bruising negotiating stance over the European community budget. And he said, and I quote, it's rather like sending your opening batsman to the crease only to find, as the first balls are being bowled, that their bats have been broken before the game by the team captain. Now, the reason I quoted, is it just a matter of rhetoric? Um, Does the sort of quaint cricketing simile disguise the criticism? Does it intensify it? Have we lost, based on what you you were just talking about, uh, Kitty and Bertram, have we lost the ability that how Jeffrey Howe showed to be directly critical without being insulting? If you can strike a balance between justifiably criticising your own team, if it were, in pursuit of the greater good, it can come across very well. It's a very difficult game to play. But if you can express some degree of self-reflection, self-criticism, it opens you up to others as being a much more trustworthy person. Yeah. And one thing we, we really sort of hate is hypocrisy, where somebody blames somebody else, though having done the same thing maybe in the past or does it in parallel. And I think what's so interesting, I, I had to read the transcript that you referred to, Ed. And he keeps saying my honorable friend. And 
I think there really is and was a relationship between them. So to show respect is to criticize lightly, maybe with metaphor, maybe indirectly. But to criticize also means that you still are friends. That is, by not ignoring the other, rejecting and dismissing the other, but rather taking on that difficult task of, I criticize and I need you to know how I feel about you. And of course, also there's a whole public audience that he had to handle. But I think there's something quite profound about the idea that respect and criticism go together. And if you criticize without respect, the criticism loses its moral power and it becomes more fight rather than criticism. There's an element of uh, Shakespeare's uh, Mark Antony and Brutus, you know, the honourable Brutus. Do you remember? And so there's this relationship, but the word honourable is not a positive. It becomes more and more vindictive. When you read it, it's black and white. There's not the colour. When you watch it, if you watch a YouTube a version of that resignation speech, it's incredibly powerful. There's not a lot of love there. Um, that love has been, um, has been uh, broken asunder. And, and maybe because they were close, Bertram, it actually feeds into this, this um, anger and this um, blame. Yes, and I think that just as there is some evidence that blaming in a more restrained way can maintain relationships, uh, as we said, in small groups in particular, but also in individual relationships, interpersonal relationships, there is a form of blame turning into punishment and punishment ends relationships. If I no longer am willing to engage in the interaction of criticism, uh, maybe remorse, forgiveness, and then moving on, but if I punish as a person or as, as an institution, there is no relationship anymore. I mean, this is, this is why it's so detrimental that we have institutionalized uh, criticism and powerful punishment. And it almost seems, even though historically the arc goes down, at least in the US in the last few decades, uh, the arc has gone up again, intensity and frequency of, of punishment. There is no relationship between the punisher and the punished. If the state punishes and whether it's incarceration or, in the worst case, the death penalty in a few U.S. states, there's nothing there. There's nothing left. And if then the person returns from prison and is also not reintegrated with the community, let alone with the state, you really have no functional future together and, and even alone. So this is, I think, one of the really sad changes in, in larger and larger societies that criticism is not really a tool anymore, but it becomes punishment replacing criticism and blame. Well, we're coming towards the end and I'm going to give you each the opportunity to own up, to own up to some recent misdeed now in a form of you don't have to offer a confession. But, you know, are you able to acknowledge a responsibility for some act for which you have rightly been blamed or perhaps no one's blamed you at all. Bertram, you first. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I would rather not admit to a misdeed without my lawyer present. <laughs> but I'll tell you something that my wife and I have adopted. It's, it's a practice that goes as follows. When we have an argument, and it could be about claims of fact. Uh, one says, no, it was four years ago. And the other says, no, 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 that was two years ago. 
And we all know that we can get into these uh, very confident statements and claims. What we have agreed to and really do now quite reliably is when then reality comes out, it was really four years ago. The one who was wrong, who wrongly confidently claimed the other thing, has to say, you were right and I was wrong. And we literally have to use those words. And I'll tell you, it still stings a little to have to say that. But it is powerful because the other almost is invited immediately to forgive. And any kind of disagreement is just that, disagreement over facts. That can also be about somewhat more uh, morally tinged and not just factual disagreements. So I think this is... We really needed to practice that. It was not easy the first time. So whatever misdeeds there are or small disagreements there are, being able to say that and practice saying it, I think goes a little bit towards that reconciliation and also reinstating our own self-image, but still being able to admit. Well, being completely blameless. uh, (laughs) Oh, gosh. um, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but when I was a teenager, I just passed my driving test. And I drove it out and I sort of, you know, got really overconfident and tried to park it and ended up scratching my dad's new paintwork. I drove it home, parked it in the the carport and he saw it and inevitably went absolutely ballistic. And he thought it was, he blamed my mum for doing it. Oh, your bloody mother's done this again. And I said nothing. I didn't own up. And to this day, I still feel guilty about it. Um, Not guilty enough to actually tell her, though. (laughs) But maybe if I just sort of the, go through the ritualized confession, maybe that'll alleviate some of my guilt rather than actually trying to make interpersonal amends. Who knows? Kitty, you're pardoned. That's all for this week. Thanks to my guests, Bertram Marley and Kitty alone. We'd like to hear from you at nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know where we're going wrong or what we're getting right. If you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue, which includes episodes on Einstein, nudge theory, racism and many, many more, You can find them and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.